Welcome to the Sports PR Podcast, episode number 36. This episode features Peter Stringer, the Vice President for Digital Media with the Boston Celtics. Uh, Pete and I have been Twitter friends for a while. I know that sounds really weird, but, you know, it's 2016, so get over it. Uh, Pete has a lot of great ideas, and uh, I've enjoyed watching a lot of the things he's done with the Celtics. And he provided a lot of good insight on the ROI of, of how the Celtics measure uh, their social and digital strategies um, when he began with the Celtics in 2005 and how websites have evolved. And we even delve into the NFL's ridiculous social media restrictions. Uh, I think you're going to like it. It's about an hour worth of uh, of untimely goodness. Didn't expect to have a podcast this week, but remembered uh, Pete and I have been playing phone tag, so glad we were able to get it get it done. So without further ado, here's episode 36 of the Sports PR Podcast featuring the Boston Celtics Peter Stringer. Well, cool. Well, uh, finally, I've been joined by uh, arguably the the best bald head in the in the Northeast, Peter Stringer, uh, with the Boston Celtics. Pete, I appreciate you taking the the time to join me. Uh, first and foremost, I think one of the most interesting things about your journey is. The fact that you started off really as as a media member of sorts, writing for uh, NESN's website before transitioning to the Boston Celtics, uh, talk a little bit about how you think uh, people's transition from writing for the media to becoming a team's media. How beneficial is that for you, for someone in your position? Well, first of all, we're going way back, and and thanks for having <laughs> me on on the show. But um, and it's going to date myself uh, dramatically. But um, yeah, so. I, my start, yeah, was at uh, Nesson, who, you know, they run the Red Sox and the Bruins uh, games on television, and this is back in the mid to late 90s, so I, as a junior at Boston University, um, I, one of my professors, Jack Fowl, the late Jack Fowl, who was a Sports Illustrated writer, and honestly was a guy that, um, he was so instrumental in my career in college, and, and um you know, he passed about five, six years ago and, and uh, right around this time. And so, you know, just thinking about him right now, I'm, I'm honestly getting misty-eyed because he was just such an influence in my career um, and a guy that just uh, took a lot of time. And, you know, in college, not a, not every professor always has time for their students, but he was one of those guys that uh, they really made time for me and, and, and helped me get along early in my career and kind of pushed me in the right directions and, and um yeah, you know, so just aside from all of that, you know, without him, I'm not sure I would be sitting here today. Um, and that's just kind of something I reflect on every now and then. But as we start thinking back to my days at NASA, that's kind of the first thing that comes to mind is, is how Jack helped me get in there and um, really was a mentor. But so anyway, uh, Nesson at the time was launching a sports website in, in 1996, uh, which was unheard of if you think about it now, realistically. Um, you know, you look 20 years later, and people are now really getting aggressive about content. But Nest was way ahead of its time getting into the space in terms of creating um, digital content around not only the teams that they broadcasted, but also the Celtics and the Patriots. And so um, myself, being a basketball uh, junkie who grew up in New Hampshire and watching Larry Bird and Danny Ainge and Parrish and McHale and all those guys, um, got an internship with them uh, that year and was writing articles for their website, was writing just kind of game recap kind of stuff, and literally just watching at home and then putting together a recap on the Pats game of the Celtics. And you know, I went to them, I said, hey, you know, I'd love to uh, approach the Celtics about getting press credentials and the Patriots about getting credentials at the time. And 
Um, you know, they didn't they didn't necessarily think it'd work, but I figured, hey, you know, it's Nesson, like it's a reputable sports outlet, and sure enough, the Celtics um, gave me press credentials, and I believe I was the first digital kind of reporter or writer to ever cover the Celtics at that time, because just there, you know the onslaught of blogs just didn't exist at that point. It was way too early for that, but. So I went and I started covering Celtics games as a junior in college uh, alongside Bob Ryan, Dan Shaughnessy, all these guys I grew up reading and got to kind of fast forward through all the stuff that a lot of my journalism school classmates would, you know, were kind of knew was the path, which was that, you know, you go intern at a paper, maybe you get a job in Wheeling, West Virginia or some small market and work your way and try to eventually get back to the Boston Globe, the Herald and cover the team you want to cover and I got to kind of fast forward and skip all that, um, and that was pretty awesome at the time and really gave me a good taste of what it meant to be a beat writer for a sports team. Um, I wouldn't say, that, you know, certainly at that point as an intern especially, I, would, I was not doing the type of work that a beat writer would be doing in terms of the, you know, the travel and everything else that goes in with it um, and the deadline writing and those things, but I got a real good taste of what it was kind of like. Um, and in the time from my junior year to when I graduated and, and took a full-time job in Nesson, kind of running their website, really uh, got to understand what it was like to work in a locker room for all sport, all four teams, the Red Sox, Bruins, Celtics, and Patriots. Um, you know, got to know the personalities who covered the teams and really, uh, you know, got that taste of sports writing up close that most of my, again, like college um, friends and guys who were doing journalism school, very few got a taste of that type of stuff. And so that was interesting right from the start. Um, but I learned a couple things right away and that, um, you know, outside of the very successful sports writer guys, uh, a lot of them seemed kind of miserable. And that stuck out to me a lot. Um, and I was like, yeah, I don't know if being a beat writer is really what I want to do. Um, and, you know, it's funny, if you talk to guys like a Bob Ryan um, they'll tell you about kind of how it was in, in the early 80s and 70s when the teams and the reporters traveled together on the same commercial flights. Of course, now, mm-hmm. really since the Jordan Bulls, it's, it all changed and everything is private planes and five-star hotels that, and, you know, no beat writers staying in, in the, uh, the Ritz-Carlton when they go to Cleveland to cover the Cavalier Celtics game. That's just not how it works. But So there's a, the, the divide between kind of the team and the media really took hold in the mid-90s right as I was getting into it and became much more obvious, you know, into the 2000s where just like you're talking about people living totally different lifestyles and the salaries escalated. Um, you're really looking at two different worlds. And, you know, it's created this environment where, you know, the reporters really have nothing in common with the athletes anymore. Um, and it's a, it's a unique dynamic that I think uh, – unfortunately takes away a lot of the storytelling and a lot of the um, the insight that they, that our sports reporter used to be able to provide because they just they don't socialize with the athletes in the same way that they did in the 70s and 60s and you know everything back to like Babe Ruth and all that type of stuff where the reporters and the athletes were kind of all in the same gang that's just not how it is anymore um, but putting all that aside the experience of working at a media outlet and then coming to the team um, I was blown away when I started at the Celtics in 2005 in terms of learning about sports marketing and how teams actually sold tickets and kind of the level of effort that went into that. You have no idea unless you work at a team or a college to understand what really goes on in terms of how teams are marketed and what it takes to sell a building out every night. I, I remember, and that's all great information, I remember when I was in, you know, in, in high school and the Internet was you know really coming into its own and 
you know, I remember checking ESPN.com or whatever it was called back then, ESPN Sport Zone, whatever stupid URL yeah. had. And, you know, you'd swear it was the same story on the front page all day. Now it's, you know, you have new content every 30 seconds. What, <laughs> right. what thinking about that, how has, from, from your vantage point, how do you think websites have changed from a team perspective in terms of what news they're showing, how much content they're creating, and and just how it's come more from desktop to now a, a mobile activation first mentality. Yeah, I mean, obviously a lot has happened in the 11 years I've been here. So again, I started in, at the start of the season in 2005, and at that point, you know, there's no video on our website at all, um, outside of maybe like a very slow, small QuickTime video, which you know, kids listening today to this, if they're in college, wouldn't even know what the heck that is, but. Um, there really was no video at all on the site, really. So when I and when I, when I interviewed in, in for the job, um, I dismantled the site. I was a web developer at that time. I was doing financial websites, and I knew how to build a website from scratch and from the ground up, and kind of knew what was good web development and design and what was bad, and, and you know, knowing the HTML and CSS, all the underlying technologies underneath it. And the Celtics website was a hot mess at that point. Um, and part of it was because it lived on a platform of 30 other websites across the NBA, which still happens today, but it was just not nearly as sophisticated as it, as it is today. And so when I interviewed for the job uh, with the people at the Celtics at that time, you know, I said, listen, like the site needs to be overhauled. Here are the things I would do with it. And also there's no content on it. And myself having gone to journalism school, and I always knew I could write. That's always been my best skill. I don't really do that much of it anymore, but that was kind of what really got me in. And I was like, there, there really needs to be a reason for fans to come there. I grew up a Celtics fan my entire life and had never been to Celtics.com before I started preparing for this interview. Um, knew nothing about it, didn't go to the site. But at the time, if you went to Celtics.com, it was a bunch of advertisements for tickets and corporate partner logos, and that was it. And it was just, there was nothing there that was like, wow, you know, I need to come back here and read this every day. And, and ultimately, the goal, you know, again, for the website was to get people to come buy tickets and come to the game. You want the building sold out every night. And our team at that point um, didn't really have a ton of star power. Um, it was really kind of a transitional phase. They'd had a nice run in the 2002 NBA up to the conference finals. But outside of that, they were in the midst of a 20-year championship drought. And so it was a very different time for our team than it was uh, going to become in a few years. But So my whole approach was, you know, we need to have daily coverage of the team. And so I started taking it upon myself to go to practice cover those practices and, and write reports as if I was one of the media and just kind of, that, that became what I did. And so that turned into, you know, covering the game as a reporter, then doing road trips with the team, traveling with the team, team plane, team hotel, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, going on playoff runs as the Garnett and Pierce and, and Allen got put together in 2008 with that whole playoff run. And then several years after that. And so it completely, from a content standpoint, we went from having like no content at all to me like writing daily stuff. And I remember not the first year, but I think the second year where I really started diving in on it and covering practice. I remember some of the, like, there were a couple of like local blogs that were, that were kind of generating content, basically repurposing stuff that was in the Herald of the Globe mm -hmm. um, and kind of analyzing it. And they started taking notice of what I was doing on Celtics.com. And what, you know, I would go to a practice at 11 a.m., and crank out a piece and put it up on the homepage about what, what Doc had talked about at practice, what Doc Rivers had talked about at practice that day. And, you know, maybe it was, you know, Gerald Green coming back from an injury or whatever it may be. 
and I had the same access that the, the Herald of the Globe. I didn't have any special access, but I was just putting the stuff up earlier, whereas the papers, their routine at that time was still, you know, they'd go to practice, get the quotes they needed, whatever, put their story together at home and, and you know, brew a pot of coffee, take it, take it easy, and they probably didn't have a deadline until 8 or 9 o'clock p.m. at the earliest and, and maybe maybe slightly beyond that. And I would just come, I would come back to the office, our, you know, our training facility is about a half an hour outside of the city, come back to the office, bang out an article, and post it up from my desk at, like, maybe 1 o'clock. And the blogs kind of started noticing this, and i got to tell you, like, the, the guys who were covering the team for the papers started getting annoyed because they realized, oh, wow, you know, everything that's in my story is in this story already, and it's up there, you know, 12 hours ahead before anyone sees it in the paper the next day. Um, and that was kind of a turning point, and that was around 05, 06 that started happening. And, and we definitely got some complaints, but we kind of kind of just pushed forward with it. And, you know, now that's just the world we live in. Twitter obviously comes out a couple of years later, and, and the news cycle has gone down from hours to minutes to seconds, and it's a totally different world now. But, yeah, at that time when I first started, it was still very much um, unusual what I was doing, and most teams weren't doing that. You know, now you've got every team's got somebody writing about it. Every team's got an on-camera reporter. Not every team, but a lot of teams have gone this way. You know, right now I've got a staff of seven people. We have three videographers. There's always a video camera traveling with our team on the road at practice everywhere we go, um, and we're cranking out uh, 50 to 60 hours of original video every season. Um, and, you know, every day from training camp uh, here in October, there's a report about what the team is up to, and uh, our host, Amanda Flugrad, is taking you uh, inside practice to tell you what happened. Uh, Mark D'Amico, our analyst, is telling you what's going on after a preseason game. So we're, we are in the business of creating content, and increasingly now it's all sponsored content. So we've got you know, Celtics have 40, 50 corporate partners who spend money to reach our audience, and increasingly they're all looking to get exposure across our digital and social and, and video platforms. Well, I, I got two follow-up questions to, to everything you said. One, did you ever imagine, thinking back to 2005, that you would have an army of, of seven people and, <laughs> and you guys would be – you guys would be doing all this, and I say army of seven. Coming from my college background, I would have yeah. still had seven people working for me. But uh, did, did you ever think it was going to transform into that? Um, yes and no, and I would say because I felt like there was an immense value in creating our own content and giving fans a reason to come to our website. And because ultimately, again, at that point, you know, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter you were relying on people to come to your website, right? So there was no kind of outbound communication for us outside of our email marketing database, right? And so for fans to discover our content, they had to just be like, you know what, I'm going to go check out Celtics.com because I want the results from last night's game or whatever it may be. But at that point, it was still like, you know, most fans were probably still going to Boston Globe or Ross and Herald because that's what they grew up reading and that's what they wanted to get. And so... But at that time, I always felt like, you know, this was eventually going to merge and it would be somewhere, um, you know, the idea that I could get that news, again, 12, 16 hours ahead of the paper, that to me was just too powerful. Obviously, I didn't envision kind of what's happened with regard to social media. I don't think anybody could tell you that they did. But I will say that as we got involved in video production in 2008, and that was simply me getting an intern from BU, and a $500 Handycam that was starting to shoot HD at that point, and I've, I've still got a pile of HD videotapes in my office, you know, from the title year in 2008, but I had to, I went and taught myself Final Cut Pro. I, I felt like, you know what, video is obviously the way this is going to go, and as bandwidth kept increasing and the uh, 
the ability to digitize video, um, it, it kept getting quicker. Um, I actually had like a Mac Pro tower on my desk, and I, we had gone out. I had bought Final Cut Pro and, and taught myself how to edit video. Again, I can't do what my team does now. Those guys are way beyond my level of sophistication ever got to. But um, I did feel like we were going to continue to crank out more and more video content once we once we started. Um, and to say that I envisioned it all at this point, maybe in 2005, no. But I think as things started progressing, it became clear to me that this is going to – it wasn't going to get smaller. It was only getting bigger, especially when Facebook came along. And we started getting this gigantic audience today, which is about 9 million. It's not growing the way it used to, but when we first got to like a million people on Facebook, which dwarfed our email database at the time, that was really when the light went on, like, wow, this is really becoming big, and I think there's a huge opportunity here. And speaking of opportunity, you mentioned earlier how you guys have 50 to 60 corporate partners that sponsor your video and digital content. Have you guys finally found the uh, so-called magic bullet to how to monetize and make money off of your content? Well, I mean, we certainly do make money off of our content with regard to the stuff that is given to corporate partners. And just to be clear, so we, you know, we have 40, 50 corporate partners, maybe it's 60, whatever the number is. Uh, I would say a handful of those are spending money with regard to uh, sponsoring digital video content and social content. Most of them have some sort of component to their social component to their stuff, um, but it's a growing list, and, and certainly there's no, there's no shortage of demand. And so when you look at for us, it's been um, you know we've done activated. We did a live streaming pregame show with American Express, which is now going to be DraftKings this season. Um, JetBlue sponsors content. Um, American Express was on the show before, but uh, Optum. Amtrak in the past. I mean, the list goes on and on. I'm just blanking on it for a moment here, but um, but yeah, we we create a ton of of uh, sponsored video content, and that's not changing. That's only getting that's only going to continue to grow. And it's funny. Facebook's obviously gone in this year and kind of realized what we were doing and finally changed the rules in terms of what we could do with regard to sponsored video content, and they've kind of locked down that platform a lot more. And so there are now kind of rules we have to play by with regard to how we distribute that content on Facebook. But by far, Facebook is our largest, our largest audience for that content, and it's not unusual for those videos to do 100,000 views a pop sometimes. Um, so the game has completely changed. And, and like I was saying before, whereas we used to rely on fans you know, coming to our website, now we go to them, um, and we have a much larger kind of distribution channel than, than a Boston Globe or Herald will ever, will ever have in that space. Just because the way Facebook works, you know, it's natural for fans to say, hey, I love the Boston Celtics, I like them, I want to follow it, versus maybe people following the Boston Globe. is, is You know, it's just not quite the same value proposition um, on social. And so that's really where it's kind of the, the, the power has shifted to the team itself versus the media outlets because people just aren't passionate about media outlets in the same way that they're, you know, passionate about their favorite sports team. And so it's, very, it's changed the game for us dramatically. Absolutely, and and you mentioned how fans are are going more to the sports teams over the media, and that and that leads me to my next question. What do you think the biggest difference or opportunity is between the content created by the team versus content created by local media uh, and the TV networks? Well, I would say access is the obvious thing. I, you know, for us, um, and you know, I, I spend a lot of time traveling with the team um, earlier in my career. I don't really do it anymore. My team kind of does that stuff now, but. Even, you know, in the early stages when I was traveling with the team, you know, being on the team plane, the team hotel, you certainly couldn't violate the sanctity of that. And 
you know, I certainly saw plenty of things and heard things and had information that I couldn't use in a lot of cases. Um, I would say probably 80 to 90 percent of the stuff that, that I kind of was privy to that media wouldn't see, uh, I couldn't use. But, you know, that's the same of in-house broadcasters that travel with the team. They, they're, you know, they're privy to a lot of information that they can't use on the broadcast, and they're trusted to not do that. And, you know, it's funny, I ran into Doc Rivers at an event a couple of years ago and, and um, hadn't seen him since he had gone to the Clippers. And he made a point of thanking me for kind of keeping some stuff in-house and just saying, hey, listen, you know, uh, you were on the team, uh, the playing with us, a lot of stuff. You know, not, not, I don't remember ever anything ever getting out and kind of coming back. Oh yeah, that you know that came from Stringer or whatever it meant, and that meant a lot to me because you know it was, it was tough. It took a long time to kind of earn his trust. He was very old school. Doc was from the Pat Riley school of uh, the coaching tree, and, and kind of Pat Riley has always been very secretive, and, and for good reason, it served him very well. Um, but I took a lot of pride in kind of knowing that, yeah, you're going to be exposed to a lot of stuff, but you had to be very careful about what you decided you could kind of sprinkle into your story, um, whether it was injury news, whether it was just, you know, player relationships, things of that nature. Um, but there were advantages to kind of being around the team and traveling with them that would kind of lend insight into the types of things that I could write that maybe had more insight than a beat reporter would have just simply because you had more context for things. And so... I could maybe um, describe scenarios uh, that would lend color that, that they just weren't privy to. And I think sometimes, that, and again, that, that type of access occasionally annoyed writers who just didn't have that access. But, you know, the reality, the answer was, hey, you know what, we're the team, and this is our, this is our content, we're going to monetize it, and we're going to use it to our advantage. So there were cool things that we got to do that nobody else saw, things like um, – I remember when we won the title in 08, um, I got to go to the White House with them and, and take photos. And even some of that stuff we really couldn't use because the White House itself was uh, a little bit restrictive about what we could actually use. Um, or even when, the, we, when, our, when our guys got sized for rings, I just happened to be at the facility that day doing a story with Paul Pierce on something else. And um, the ring company came with the, uh, just the dummy rings that you use to try and get your sizes. And so we captured some of that on video of the guys kind of envisioning what the ring was going to look like and getting to try on these things. Just like things like that that I think are really cool to take fans behind the scenes that, you know, you'd mm -hmm. love to, you know, fans always want to hear about that stuff and, and, and certainly the expectation is the team can always produce that. I think the challenge is always, again, what I kind of alluded to before is you want to take fans behind the scenes, but the, you also have to respect the sanctity of the locker room and the, and the players' privacy and that, you know, these guys have a ton of demands on their time. Um, there's obviously no shortage of interest in, in what goes on behind the scenes, but we have to be careful about what we kind of are willing to put out there and, and kind of how we portray our players and, and make sure that we're doing it in the best possible light. You know, we want them to obviously trust us and understand that when we do bring a camera around that, you know, we're not going to make anybody look bad and, and we're going to be selective about what we put out. What And, and here's the million-dollar question. Uh, one of my favorite quotes, Gary Vaynerchuk, everyone asks about ROI, and he says he always comes back with a smart-ass question, what's the ROI of your mom? And, and, <laughs> and, yeah, that, and that's it, ridiculous. It, yeah, and, you know, ROI, people always throw it out. It's like well, it's one of these damn fancy buzzwords now, but I want to know what or how do you measure the return on investment of what you guys produce on a daily basis? Sure. So certainly, I mean, you know, just on, on the on the very basic level, in terms of content that's sponsored, um, we're obviously, as part of a larger sponsorship deal, uh, you know, we have specific carve-outs for digital content, digital video content, 
Um, and so right away on that, uh, it's pretty easy to tell us what, what type of revenue we're generating off that content. And I, I can tell you, I can't get into numbers, but I can tell you it's a, um, it's a very uh, profitable business for us um, in terms of the amount of uh, spend we have on equipment and staffing and all those types of things versus what it actually generates for us as part of, of partnership deals. Um, we're well ahead on that space. Um, and so right away off the top, you know, that, that's an easy calculation for us. I think the same way that, um, you know, everything from a media value standpoint, if you, you know, if you go into Facebook, um, you know, Facebook will tell you what it's worth to reach a certain audience. You can go in there and try to buy that audience and they'll tell you what it's worth. Um, and obviously, over the last couple of years, you don't get the, the type of reach on Facebook that you used to get because they've realized they can monetize it and people will pay for that audience. And so, um, you know, when it comes to ROI, not only for us, but for our partners, you know, at the end of the day, when our partners spend money with us, we're trying to provide value for them. And so, you know, we have a calculation that we come up with based on what we know it's worth to reach X amount of an audience. And, you know, we create a media value around that. And then basically for a partner, whether if they've got a season-long campaign, at the end of the year, we can tell them how many people they reached, how many people watched the videos, all those different things. And we've got calculations that are based on real-world numbers that, again, um, that people are paying in the marketplace for, you know, what it costs to reach people through that, through those channels. Um, and then we, uh, we back into a media value based on that. And then, you know, obviously no, nobody's paying rack rate for that, but, um, you know, it's discounted for sure. Um, but, but, you know, the, that, those numbers are actually fairly easy for us to generate because of the size and scale that they, a fan base uh, of a professional sports team would have. Um, you know, it's a little bit different if you're a, um, you know, if you're a, somebody who is creating content on their own and, and don't have the power of a massive brand behind it to kind of come up with those calculations. But for us, uh, we can certainly look at that, and, and uh, we do pretty well with it. Earlier this week, um, the NFL decided to make an announcement on new social media rules and regulations. And I know you're in the heart of New England Patriots country where every Patriots fan hates the NFL and Roger Goodell. So I felt <laughs> I, I felt it necessary to ask you about this, yeah. this new rule. Clearly, the NBA is a global brand because of of how they share and, and utilize their digital and social content. And they're, you guys are a little bit more free to do what you want to do in the NBA, whereas the NFL is, is so ridiculously restricted. In your mm-hmm. mind, from from a fan, let's talk about from a fan's perspective, because I know you're a Patriots fan. Do what do you think about the NFL new social media rules and regulations? Because clearly a fan that's on Twitter and Facebook, they want to share cool stuff. And right. if, if your favorite team's not allowed to share cool stuff, then clearly the fans are losing out on that, right? Well, you know, here's the thing. I think whether the teams do it or not, fans are going to do it. Whether that means they're going to pull their iPhone out and take a video of a highlight, um, you know, that's going to happen. Fans do that all the time. And, in fact, it's funny. I still get retweets. I forget who it was, but I think it was from last season. I had tweeted out, and there was a, this catch that, like, I think it was Odell Beckham or one of those guys. Mm-hmm. And I tweeted it out, and um, Aaron Andrews had retweeted it. Um, she's a Celtics fan, and we've been connected for a while. And uh, she retweeted the, the tweet, and obviously she has a massive audience of a couple million people. I still get retweets on that thing to this day. And eventually, <laughs> at some point, the NFL, I think somebody, that content got pulled down, but it was basically a, like a screen capture that I think either I had done or somebody else had done or a Vine. I forget exactly what it was, but... 
um, of this incredible catch that was like made in the back of the end zone with one hand. I, I, I wish I could remember it, but um, anyway, I still, I literally, I still get retweets on that. And then there was a holding play that happened with the Denver Broncos in the AFC Championship game, um, where there was a clear hold on their touchdown run, and I, you know, kind of screen captured that. And you could see the guy holding the jersey, whatever, and that got retweeted a million times. Not a million times, but a, a lot. <laughs> it got thousands of retweets. I still get retweets on that occasionally as well. Some of those might even be spam at this point. Who knows? But realistically, fans are going to just capture that content, and I don't think the NFL really can control that. Obviously, the, you know, the, the teams obviously have very large audiences of their own. You know, the Patriots probably have about 2, 3 million on, on Twitter, I would expect. Um, probably, they're probably close to us if they're not past us. Uh, we have 2 million on our Twitter, or we're just about to hit the 2 million mark. But, um, but realistically, I, I think the challenge is, you know, they've made a decision that, they, you know, the, like for every league, the highlight is their most valuable piece of inventory, right? And mm-hmm. uh, they seem to think they don't want to give it away. Um, and, you know, there's obviously business drivers behind that, uh, especially now with all the rumblings about, in fact, I think it just came out today that the Monday night football game was down 25% from week five last year. Um, you know, people are attributing that to the election and all sorts of other things, but certainly digital and streaming and all the other aspects that are involved in, in the uh, sports landscape today are probably pe- playing a factor in this whole thing. Um my guess is that they're panicking a little bit based on the, t- the television ratings drop that's been, you know, across the board since week one this year. Um, but I think it's also financially driven. I, I, th- I think, obviously, uh, if you're Twitter and you're Facebook and you're getting all this fantastic sports content, um, if you're the NFL, you're like, wait, why aren't they paying for that? And I think that's a major driver at the end of the day. And so, obviously, they went out and did the deal with Twitter and, and streamed the games, and I think that's a great step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. I was curious that, they, that they're allowing tw- Twitter to stream an entire game for free to fans, but yet uh, you're telling you know the Patriots or the Cowboys or whoever that they can't actually put out a GIF or, or you know anything like that during the game and basically uh, on game day. And we, I believe that rule went into effect today, effectively. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens this uh, this weekend. And even um, you know, a- as you look at it, I think it's going to evolve. Um, curious enough, I don't think they had restrictions around Snapchat specifically mm-hmm. or Instagram, at least in the memo that was leaked out. So, again, there, there's probably more to it than we're probably privy to. But um, either way, I would say, you know, at the end of the day, the league is trying to protect their most valuable asset, which is the highlight. I think the NBA has always kind of had a different um, outlook on it. I can't obviously speak for Adam Silver or David Stern before him, but I think the, the idea was simply that, you know, the more people who see our highlights, the better. Um, and while it is our most valuable asset, at the end of the day, if it's driving passion about the game, if people want to see that, they're more likely to come to a game and spend the ticket. You know, the NFL is also the same league that's always, always had that blackout rule, whereas, like, growing up as a Patriots fan as a kid, and, and yeah, you know, I'm not a bandwagon guy, but I was a Pats fan when it was not cool as a kid. And um, in the early 90s with Rod Rust and all these terrible teams, the games would get blacked out uh, because the the stadium wasn't sold out, and that was kind of a that's an old school NFL mentality thing that really I don't believe any other league was really doing. But if the game wasn't sold out by a certain point in the week, then the game would be blacked out. Um, you know that's almost unusual now because most teams aren't aren't don't have a problem selling NFL tickets. But it was a different world in the early '90s for sure. So I think there's a lot of factors involved, but I, I think ultimately when these, these types of things happen, you can usually follow the money, and that's usually the first way to figure out what's actually going on. Um, I don't have any inside knowledge on that, but that's my, my take is that they're probably trying to negotiate with Facebook and Twitter 
with regard to coming up with a way for them to pay for that content more directly beyond just the you know the, the games that Twitter is spending money with the NFL to stream. Well, as you said, uh, it's all about money, and obviously, I think their decision is. It's clearly one where they want to be in control and they want to make as much revenue off of their content as possible. Well, and I mean, I think, again, you know, it's interesting that the uh, the NFL was down the first four weeks and the one the two people who were missing in the first four weeks were uh, Brady and Manning, who were mm-hmm. arguably their biggest stars. Yep. Uh, and so I would suggest that that probably had something to do with it as well. And obviously Brady came back this week and, and – um, you know, we'll see how that impacts things longer term. I'm not going to suggest that he's chiefly responsible for ratings being down, but I would say that, you know, guys like that drive interest on a national level that, you know, it's hard to, you know, when those guys are on national TV, that, that Brady Manning matchup so many times was, was a record-setting matchup. And so I think there's part of that. I think there's a lot of factors involved, but ultimately I still feel like it comes down to a financial decision. Absolutely. Uh, personally, I, I like it when brands show their personality online and, and they aren't just repeating and regurgitating stats and such. Um, however, I, you know, lately you see some of these teams, they, they strike gold with, you know, 15 minutes of fame with something funny and then everyone tries to, to replicate it. And obviously I think there's some brands specifically. Uh, the Bisquick crap earlier this week during the presidential debate drives me batshit crazy. I think there's some brands that just try too hard. How are the Celtics and, and other teams able to balance their voice effectively without, you know, falling into that zone where they're just being obnoxious and ridiculous? Well, I can tell you, you know, we're an interesting case study on this because obviously for us, uh, you know, we're fortunate to have, you know, 70 years of amazing history, um, you know, that I grew up on since I was a child. So, I, you know, I know this brand inside and out and everything that it stands for. And so as Twitter and, and Facebook and all these things and kind of even our website, really, I've always had a good instinct of what I could and couldn't do and, and write and, and um, not only from a PR standpoint, but from a brand standpoint. Like, what does this team mean to people? And, you know, I grew up watching the, the games on my dad's lap as a kid and, and kind of learning about, Bill Russell, and and then obviously watching, you know, Bird, McHale, Parrish, all these guys who's, you know, Red Auerbach, blood, sweat, and tears invested into this brand. And and so I get asked about the brand thing so many times when I speak at conferences, and I always tell people, you know, again, there's 70 years of blood, sweat, and tears invested into this brand that Russell and Bird and Auerbach, all these guys have um, poured their heart and souls into, and it's not my job to try to screw that up or, you know, try to be funny and put that on the line. You know, realistically, I have way too much respect for what those guys have done to sit there and try to be snarky with our account and try to, you know, do something, uh, take a shot at another team or just try to be funny in a, in a way that has nothing to do with the game, uh, just in the name of trying to get retweets or uh, quote-unquote engagement. Um, you know, that said, the landscape has gone so far in that direction that I think at times we probably have to rethink exactly what we're doing just because, the world, it's a different world now, and I think, um, you know, whereas I may not agree with it, and uh, I'm certainly not bashful about pointing it out when I see teams doing something silly that just doesn't make sense, um, you know, I, I think we, we also have to acknowledge that, you know, I think the bigger thing is that it's not a social media manager's job to decide what a brand is, and I think I think teams need to really sit back and rethink this because, in some cases, you're allowing someone to crack a joke that they think is funny in the, the heat of the moment, which may not be funny at all. Um, I go back to some things like, um, 
you know, the crying Jordan face. There was a, there was a playoff game or it was an NBA game last year where the Atlanta Hawks put, uh, you know, they were getting blown out, and I forget who it was, but they did they put out a score update graphic where it was uh, their opponent was like 100 and something, and then the Hawks they didn't even put the score. They just put the crying Jordan face out. Yeah, there. I I, re- I remember that. Yep. And when I saw that instantly, I'm like, all right, if I played for the Atlanta Hawks, I would be absolutely furious by the, about this because you're basically taking a shot at your own team. And while self-deprecation is uh, good in some situations, um, the social media manager, is that, that, that's not their job or their role. And I would not want to have to go into the locker room and explain that to somebody if they were pissed off about it. Um, and realistically, you know, these guys put so much time and effort in, you know, Professional athletes, what they go through to prepare for games every single night of the week, and, and it's ridiculous. And I have way too much respect for it, having seen it up close for so long. And I would never want to take a shot at our own guys. Like that, that to me blew my mind. I, I just couldn't believe it. Um, I thought it was really short-sighted, and they thought it was great because it got a ton of retweets. But then what? It was, so basically, you're sharing with the entire world that your team got blown out that night, and that's supposed to be a positive development. I, I just. I think people just are not doing the math on this stuff in a lot of cases, and they're not kind of rethinking, all right, this is funny now, and it's going to get a ton of retweets, but what does that actually mean? And I think I think people and brands and, and teams really need to rethink all this stuff. You know, there are certainly teams that have nothing to lose and don't have that type of history that, that we're so fortunate to enjoy, and I, I say that with all due respect, but mm-hmm. in some cases those teams have a totally different outlook on it. They're just looking for attention, and any way they can get it in their minds is good. That's just not who we are, and I don't think that's what we should be. Um, you know, there are probably people internally who disagree with me on that, and I think we're kind of in the in the transition period where we're kind of expanding our social uh, footprint and kind of more marketing people are getting involved with that, and they may have different opinions, and that's totally fine. But the way I view it anyway has always been about respecting the brand that we've built over 70 years and that guys like Auerbach and Russell and Bird – that's what our brand is, and you know when the, when that day changes, then you know again maybe we need to rethink things. But but realistically, that's how I've always looked at it. I feel like you know the stuff that that people put out on their Twitter feeds, uh, especially like to me, it's like would you have put that in a press release 30 years ago or 20 years ago? And, and the answer is no. Would you put it on a billboard in Times Square? Probably not. And so I just think people need to really think about. How they're re- how they're representing their brand on these platforms, um, and it's not just simply about throwing an emoji out there and cracking a joke and trying to be snarky or sarcastic. Um, to me, that's not marketing. No, they, you make a valid point. And I remember, I forget what game it was, but I remember when it was happening because we were still living in Atlanta, and surprisingly, string the the. The backlash from the fans wasn't as negative. The media kind of took it a different way, and I think a couple of players may have said something about it. But, yeah, you're right. A lot of people, you know, they get lost in the moment. They they want that, right. that 15 minutes of of publicity. They they want to get their, their team name out there. And sometimes when you do that, you may think it's funny, but like you yeah. said, you're, you could be risking the brand and putting everything that the brand stands for at risk just for, you know, a graphic or 140 characters of silliness. And at the end of the day, is that really worth 70 years, 100 years of hard work for 15 seconds? Right. Well, and I go back to the the Houston Rockets one. I'm sure you probably remember that where they were playing the Mavericks and they had the whole – 
the rocket ship with the handgun and the horse uh, emojis, and it said something to the effect of, like, it'll all be over soon, or I forget what it was, at the end of the playoff series, and I believe that the uh, the social media manager responsible got terminated. But um, And that was kind of probably the worst-case example of it, but, again, it was something that, you know, probably seemed funny in his head and, and clever and all those things at the time, but... There were so many other implications to that tweet that if you wanted to, and in the society we live in right now where everything is just taken, um, you know, it doesn't matter what you say, if you, you know, all, you don't have to look any further than the presidential election and all the stuff that around that where it's like something you said 10 years ago can come back and bite you at this point. Um, you've got to be very careful about how you represent your brand because it's going to get screenshotted no matter what, you, I don't care how quickly you delete it, it's forever. And before you hit send, you've got to be perfectly positive that that's exactly how you want to represent your brand. And I think just, unfortunately, we're in a world where I think teams and and, um, just brands in general are hiring kids who just are too young and too inexperienced to make these types of calls. I think there's still, we still have a real problem in our hands where it's like, all right, well, social media, let's give it to the 23-year-old or the 24-year-old or, you know, the, the, um, I think we're past the point where it's like people think it's just interns running it. I don't think that's the case, but I still think in a lot of cases we've got people who don't have the requisite background to, to really make those type of calls. Um, you know, for me, if I were hiring somebody to run social, I'd want somebody with a journalism background. I think that's important. You know, spelling, uh, grammar, all those things are very important. Uh, but also just the sensibility of, like, get it right. Like, is this factual? Is this true? Um, I think there's a lot of that missing, not just in sports, but, you know, you see brands screwing this stuff up all the time, too. So, and, you know, I want to make clear, like, I feel bad because, you know, I've gotten to know a lot of the people who do run Twitter at different teams and, and you know, whether I've known them in person or just kind of exchanged tweets with them. And, and the point is not to call these people out. I think it's simply just they've got to learn that, you know, the stakes are a little bit higher than maybe just they think they are with just one quick tweet that, again, sounds good in their own head and they put it out without thinking twice and they think it's funny when it gets retweeted a lot, but then, you know, maybe it has implications that they weren't even calculating. No, you make you make some valid points. Uh, last two questions before we get to the fun stuff. What uh, what's one thing that uh, the sports social media world can teach other industries? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I frankly think that the, the difference between sports and the other industries is that we're inherently fun and we're inherently people are passionate about us. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if you're a CPG or a QSR, some of those different industries where they don't have that, it's just not baked into what they are. We're also an experienced business, so I think, you know, to me, the parallels between sports are more closely tied to the hospitality, the hotel industry, where those, you know, if you go to a Marriott, it's about what's the experience when I go to a Marriott. For the same for us, it's about what is the experience of going to Celtics game and how can we re- replicate that and how do we bring that to people who might not otherwise come. And, you know, for us, obviously, we can only accommodate 18,000 people a night, um, you know, 41 nights a year. And so it's a very limited audience, and most of our fans and followers don't live anywhere near us. They'll never come to a game. But we want to make it such that they want to feel like they're there, and if they're not, how do they get there? Why do they have to be there, right? Um so I think in the same way, if you're a uh, again, if you're a hotel property or a casino or something like that, it's what do I have to? Uh, wh- what part of our experience can I bring across in a digital platform that makes people feel like, wow, you know what? I've got to go experience that. I've got to be there. I think that's kind of the unique 
parallel between our business and, and something like the hospitality or hotel industry, for instance. And then let's let's reverse that. What's one thing that you think our industry um, in the social space could learn from another portion from another industry? I mean, I'm fascinated by all sorts of different ones. You know, um, I like under, I like to understand what the campaigns are doing in this election season on both sides. You know, for me, it's not about uh, Republican or Democrat. It's about understanding, um, you know, how Donald Trump has used Twitter to become a viable candidate and also pretty much destroy his candidacy at the same time versus the Hillary Clinton approach is much more political and kind of is what it is uh, because she's a lifetime politician and they look at those things in a very different ways. I think those are fascinating to, to uh, examine. Um, but, yeah, certainly I look at what, uh, again, like a QSR is doing or a CPG or the hotel industry, the airline industry. You know, if you're in the airline or hotel industry, so much of what they have to deal with is when people have a negative experience, right? So it's, um, you know, if you, you're going to check in for your flight and it's delayed, it's a mechanical delay, and you get stuck in the airport in Kansas City for your entire day and people are tweeting at, you know, United or Delta, whoever it may be, um, and they've got an interesting problem on their hands. So, for instance, you know, everybody I know who kind of travels for work a lot, they're constantly tweeting about the airlines when things happen. And so in some cases when the airline is kind of having these discussions back and forth, uh, you know, it starts to reinforce this idea that everybody's just having a negative experience on the airline versus, you know, I travel pretty frequently. I can count on one or two fingers the times I've had a really negative experience with, with travel generally. Um, and so that that's the interesting part that I, I think I look at those other uh, industries and the, and the challenges that they have and try to learn from kind of how they approach it and how they attack it. Um, you know, so th there's no shortage. I spend a lot of time going to marketing conferences and meeting people who run digital and social for places like Hyatt, places like JetBlue, places, I mean, U-Haul, Walgreens, you name it, and, you know, picking their brains about what they do and what their challenges are, and there's always something to learn from the other industries. Um, you know, obviously, like I said, we're fortunate to have super passionate fans that most other industries don't, but there's just so many things to be learned from the other industries, and so I, I spend a lot of time on getting to know the people who do this uh, for other brands and, and understanding what works and what doesn't. All right, before I let you go, you ready for uh, our rapid-fire questions? Let's rock and roll. All right, biggest pet peeve on social media? Uh, snark. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, the emoji that best describes you? <laughs> that's funny. I, I'm not really an emoji guy necessarily, and, and, again, maybe that's just symptomatic of my age relative to the uh, the rest of the social media managers in, in the universe. Um that's a good one. Uh, I'd probably say that green shamrock just because every time I type Celtics into my iPhone, it pops up. All right. That's good. Uh, if there was a movie played about your life, who would play you? <laughs> I'd love to tell you George Clooney, but that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, just because he's my favorite actor. And I love Up in the Air, even though I don't, I don't travel nearly anywhere like that. But I've always identified with that movie. I thought it was pretty excellent. Um I don't know. Uh, that's a good question. I, I used to go to a lot more movies than I do now. But um, let's just say Clooney, but I know it's ridiculous. Hey, dude, it's a dream. You, you might as well. Exactly. Shoot for right. stars, man. Exactly. Um, <laughs> if you could look back and if you could wish you invented uh, one social platform or app, which one do you wish you would have invented? Hmm, that's a good one. Um, 
Twitter, honestly, only because it's my favorite one, and I spend the most time on it, and I find the most value from it. Um, I know they're obviously having incredible financial troubles, and I'm not naive enough to think that if I had somehow invented that, that I would have a better answer for them. But it's just fascinating to me the impact that's had on society, and even like looking at the whole like the Ken Bone thing from the, the debate the other day. You know, without Twitter, this guy's life doesn't like get completely like just turned on its ear the way it has in the last couple. Uh, couple of days where this guy's suddenly on all the, the late-night talk shows. Like, I don't really think any of that stuff happens if there's not this big Twitter dialogue around, you know, these two candidates suck, I'm voting for Ken Bowen, and all the other things that kind of came out after that uh, debate on Sunday. Um, so to me, it's just, I think it has the most societal impact um, in terms of just, you know, again, Facebook is gigantic and has a much larger user base, but... I just feel like when it comes to, like, conversation, whether it's around sports or politics or news, I still feel like Twitter is the place where that's happening. What If you were to write a book about your life, what would the title of your autobiography be? <laughs> Man, uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> that, that, yeah, I don't know. I, it's, it's funny because I, I, I like to think I can write, but I'm not sure – I was ever really a headline guy or a title guy, and I'm not sure what the point of the book would be just yet. But I think I got a long way to go, so we'll. we'll see. I don't know. Uh, when I when I come up with that, I'll, I'll call you back and we'll do another podcast. Fantastic. Uh, this question is going to be for my friend Jessica Smith. Should FOMO be made illegal? Uh, FOMO? Yeah. Um, that's an interesting question. I, I I wouldn't make it illegal. I think people take that stuff way too seriously, and we live in a world where because of Instagram and because of all the narcissistic stuff that the, the iPhone has created. And I'm blaming this all on Steve Jobs, by the way. I, I think people love to celebrate Steve Jobs, but I think really when I think about his contribution to the world, it's made us all much more narcissistic than we ever were, would have possibly dreamed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was an unintended consequence of the iPhone, but realistically, um, I think my in, in FOMO getting into, you know, it's funny. I love to travel a lot, and I share a ton of pictures from the amazing places that I like to go because I, I just, you know, again, it's, but I'm not usually in the photos. I, it, to me, it's all right, here's Horseshoe Bend and here's the Grand Canyon and here's uh, Zion and all these places that, you know, I've gotten addicted to going to see. Um, and so certainly I can understand when you look at your social feed and you see people in all these spectacular places and you're like, wow, I'm missing out. This is amazing. But, um, it's just we live in a different time, you know. I remember it used to be like nobody ever wanted to see your pictures of something, right? Like, it right. Used to be like the worst thing in the world was to sit down and go through somebody else's photos. Like, but now that's all we spend our time doing, and it's a really unique thing that's obviously changed with just the idea that we're constantly documenting our lives and and um, you know. So to me, and it's funny not to go on a complete different tangent, but I think I think that's the other thing that people need to learn about these digital and social platforms is understanding the psychology behind them, right? So I look at Snapchat, and Snapchat is not about what a brand publishes there. It's about, for Snapchat, you open that app, it opens to a camera, which tells mm-hmm. you right away that Snapchat wants you to record yourself and put that out there rather than follow somebody else. If you open Twitter, it opens to a feed, which tells right. me it's about, all right, let me catch up on everything that's going on with all the things I care about. So for me... I was, you know, I'm much more concerned with, you know, what are we doing to enhance someone's uh, photo at a game, right? So, you know, from the standpoint of Snapchat, I look at, like, a, a geo filter. Like, to me, that should be the important piece of the strategy for Snapchat and not just creating content that looks exactly like the stuff you put on your Instagram story or anywhere else. 
to me, it's about how does that platform work and what's the psychology behind it and what are people expecting to do with it and how do they use it and what are we going to do that fits in with that paradigm. Um, I think that's the most important part. So I know we were talking about FOMO and that kind of went way off the train there, but I think realistically, you know, uh, a Snapchat is is about that, right? It's about, here, look what I'm doing and you're not. Like, And FOMO is all tied into that whole concept. So, again, it's a crazy, you know, millennial word or whatever you want to call it, but um, – I wouldn't make it illegal. I just think people need to relax a little bit and not worry so much about what everybody else is doing and, and focus on what they're doing. And, and if, if they're not traveling, why are they not doing that? Why are they not experiencing these things and, and fix those things in their life versus worrying too much about they're not uh, experiencing? That's a solid answer. And then the last question. Uh, five Twitter right about too, but. <laughs> no, you're good. Uh, five Twitter people you wish you could have a drink with. Wow. Okay. Um, five Twitter people. I wish I could have a drink with. That's. I don't. You know, it's funny. And I follow a lot of people, um, but I've met a lot of them too. And I'm trying to think who would be like right off the top of my head that I would not want to have a drink with. Um, Bono, although he doesn't have Twitter, I don't think. But um, we'll just put him on the list anyway. Um, uh, Adam Silver. Okay. Um, I think he's a fascinating guy. I've I've met the guy a couple times and had a couple conversations with him. But haven't had a drink with him. Um, who else would I put on that list? Um, Vince McMahon. I think he's just a marketing genius, and I grew up watching WWF, and I think it would be hilarious to pick that guy's brain. Um, <clears throat> who else? Uh, I'd put Barack Obama on there just simply because he's the president, and I think realistically, if you ever have a chance to sit down with the president, you should take it. Absolutely. Um, and after that, who else do I love on Twitter? You know, it's funny. I, I follow so many different people that it, sometimes it all kind of blends together. I'd probably have to pull my feet up to, to really answer that. But I think those are that's a good short list anyway. I love it. Well, String, this has been absolutely fascinating. I could talk to you for hours, but I know – you have a job on your hands because the NBA season <laughs> is finally here again. So uh, for those listening, how can they connect with you on the interwebs? Uh, yeah, just Twitter, Peter Stringer, um, Instagram, Peter Stringer, that whole thing, LinkedIn. Um, although I typically uh, I really don't take LinkedIn from people I've never met or really had conversations with. Um, I think pe- way too many people do that. Yep. Um, and it kind of dilutes the pool and kind of really, um, you know, is counter – counteractive to what the whole point of LinkedIn is in the begin with. But uh, but certainly, you know, Twitter and Instagram are probably the two easiest places, um, and then Twitter by far the most. Um, that's where I spend my most time. This was great. Fantastic. String, always a pleasure. Appreciate it. Best of luck to the Celtics, and uh, hopefully we'll connect again soon. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me, man. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. You bet. See you.